Hi, if you're new, my name's Obed. I'm one of the leaders here. And as always, thank you for dedicating this part of your Sunday to gathering with us. Um, we've been in a series um, based on the book of Galatians, or the letter the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Galatia. Um, and we're in week nine um, of our study. Um, it's been awesome, and this week we will continue to dive deeper into Galatians. Um, and so this Sunday, we're going to be in chapter 3, um, verses 23 um, to 29, and then we're going to do chapter 4, um, verses 1 through to 7. That's the plan for our time today. And so grab your Bibles, whether you have hard copies or your journals or your, you know, your phones, whatever, digital devices, and, and let's stand for the reading of God's Word. And so Galatians chapter 3, Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through to 7. <clears throat> now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Chapter 4. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we may receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Wow, I love that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this time. You have been at work in our gatherings from the moment we walked in and the conversations we had um, and our singing. And so God, as we crack open your scripture and we seek to understand um, what it means for us to be united in Christ. I pray that you would give us understanding beyond our own natural abilities. Yes, you would use that. God, you've given us intellect and think and understanding and thought and all of these things. But God, I want you to enhance them so that we see what we couldn't see with our natural minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. <coughs> Back in the 1600s, a group of English Puritans set sail on the Mayflower, and they were seeking a new land where they could live out their faith freely. Despite the unknowns and dangers, they were driven by a conviction that their identity and purpose were anchored in something beyond themselves, their union with Christ. If you've been around Christianity for a while, you've probably heard of the term union with Christ. Union with Christ is known as one of the most valuable and encouraging and strengthening doctrines within Christianity. Just like the group of English Puritans sailing on the Mayflower, we're on a journey 
to discover the profound impact of this truth in our lives. Being united with Christ is more than just a theological concept. Being united with Christ is at the heart of the gospel and it answers some of our deepest questions like, who am I? Why am I here? Why, where am I headed? And how will I get there? Union with Christ is not just a doctrine to understand, it's a reality to live. It's about realizing that when you become a Christian, your life is woven with Jesus' life. He's in you and you're in him. This profound truth is the central storyline of the Bible, yet so many of us struggle to understand what it actually means. Rankin Wilborn wrote a book entitled The Union with Christ. It's one of the best books out there on this topic. And he had this to say, Coming to see your union with Christ is like finally putting on a pair of desperately needed glasses. Wow. Look at that. We see ourselves and everything else with new eyes. And so our passage for this morning will help us put on a pair of desperately needed glasses so that we can clearly see what it really means for Christians to be united with Christ. And so, let's ask ourselves, what does being united with Christ mean to us? And how does it change the way we see ourselves, our purpose, and our future? If you're making notes, because we're united with Christ, first of all, we are heirs. We are heirs. In the past few weeks, We've been reminded over and over again of what it truly means to be justified. To be justified in the context of Christianity means that a person is fully and completely loved and accepted by God, not because of how well they obey the law, but because a person is justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so last week, what we did was we explored an important question that is related to justification. And that question was, if the law is not needed for justification, why did God create the law in the first place? To answer that, look at verse 24 of chapter 3. Paul says, so then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Here, Paul uses a really interesting word to describe the purpose of the law before Jesus came. He says, the law was our guardian until Christ came. In ancient times, the Greek for guardian was used for a tutor or a guide or a guardian. And so think of a guardian as someone um, who was a strict and caring nanny who keeps the child safe and teaches them right from wrong until they're old enough to take on their responsibilities. That's exactly what the purpose of the law was. It was established by God to show his people how they're supposed to live, and also it revealed the nature of sin. But the law wasn't the final destination we learned last week. Just like a guardian prepares a child to eventually live without their constant supervision, the law was preparing humanity for the arrival of Jesus Christ. Once Jesus came, what he did was he fulfilled what the law was all about. He fulfilled it perfectly. He obeyed perfectly. And he obeyed it by sacrificing for sin. That's why Paul goes on to say in verse 25, 
126. Look at that. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. The law was our necessary guide to help us understand our need for a savior. It showed us our imperfections and our inability to achieve perfection on our own, making it clear why we need Jesus. But now that Jesus has come, the good news is that we're no longer under the supervision of the law, but even better, in Christ Jesus. Look at that verse again. We are all what? Sons of God through faith. Yes, you heard me right, Christian. You are being described as a son of God. I want you to do this. Highlight, underline, circle the phrase sons of God. It's going to get interesting now. You guys ready? Yeah? Whether you are or not, you're here. Let's get it. I want you to highlight, underline sons of God because I know some of you might be wondering, why just sons? Why doesn't it include daughters? Some people feel uneasy when the Bible uses masculine terms like sons, to refer to all Christians, male and female. And so what uh, some of us do is that whenever we see a phrase like sons of God, we edit it and we say children of God or sons and daughters of God. Some Bible translations do this for you, all right? They take it and they try and modernize it, sons and daughters, all of that. But what I want us to bear in mind is not to be too hasty to correct the biblical language. If we are too quick to correct the biblical language in verses like this one, we can miss the revolutionary significance of what Paul is saying when he uses the term sons of God to refer to Christians. This is why. From what we know about most ancient cultures, son often referred to a legal heir. Someone who had the right to inherit property and status from their father. As a result, sons typically had privileges and rights that daughters did not have. Are you following me? Yeah, yeah, yeah? You can respond. Good, good. Oh, yeah, that's good. Okay. And so by using sons of God to refer to all Christians, Paul is doing something quite radical. He's declaring that all Christians, whether male or female, are all sons, all legal heirs of God's promises. (laughs) He's extending the concept of being a legal heir to all believers regardless of their gender. In essence, Paul is saying that in Christ, everyone, male or female, have equal standing and access to the blessings promised by God. This would have blown the minds of his hearers. He would have read that and went, wait, wait, what? Thomas Wright says this, we might say children to avoid gender restriction, 
But part of Paul's point is that they all, females included, shared the inheritance that would normally be restricted to sons. And the Bible does this. The Bible is incredible. The Bible balances these metaphors beautifully. Just like it calls men and women together as the bride of Christ, here it calls everyone to sons of God. Tim Keller says this, God is even-handed in his gender-specific metaphors. Men are part of his son's bride and women are his sons, his heirs. So when the Bible refers to Christian women as sons of God, to all Christians as sons of God, it's not being outdated or restricted. It's actually a bold statement that radically redefines who gets to be considered an heir in God's kingdom. Being united with Christ means we are sons of God. That is, we're all heirs to every blessing promised by God, regardless of gender. In 2015, my grandma passed away. Absolutely loved my grandma. She basically raised me for most of my life. Um, And she was a devout Christian. She absolutely loved God. And when she passed away, you know, I was her favorite grandson. That's what she told me. She told all of my other cousins and brothers and everything. Um, but, like, she was just awesome. And when she passed away, I was like, oh, my gosh, what am I an heir to? Like, what am I going to inherit from my grandma as her favorite grandson? Guess what she left me? She left me her Bible. You guys are like, oh, that's so lovely. I was like, Grandma, (laughs) give me some money, mate. (laughs) In September of um, 2022, King Charles inherited something. It wasn't a Bible from Queen Elizabeth. He inherited, as the oldest, Charles III inherited the throne. I got a Bible, he got the throne. He's now King Charles III. He gets palaces, royal estates, wealth, and a kingdom to rule. But here's something even more incredible. As Christians, what we've inherited because of our faith in Christ makes all that King Charles III has inherited meaningless and insignificant. As Christians who are united with Christ, we are heirs to the promises and spiritual blessings of, here's some examples, eternal life, complete forgiveness of sins through Christ's sacrifice. We've inherited access to God, knowing we're welcome and heard by God. We have inherited peace with God, resurrection and glorified bodies, freedom from condemnation, victory over sin and death, fellowship with other believers. And there is so much more we have inherited as Christians. These inheritance and many more aren't something we can ever lose. They are forever guaranteed by God himself. Now, this puts all of this in perspective, doesn't it? What King Charles III inherited is temporary and limited to this world, but what we inherit as God's children lasts forever and has eternal significance. Let that sink in, brothers and sisters. And so, my brothers and sisters who are united with Christ, what does it actually mean for you to be 
an heir of God's promises. How does understanding your spiritual inheritance change your perspective on material wealth and worldly status? And in what ways can you live out the reality of being God's heir in your daily life? Reflect on this now and throughout the week. And so, because we're united with Christ, Christians, we are heirs. Next, because we're united with Christ, we are clothed. We are clothed. Look at verse 27 of Galatians 3. It reads, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have done what? Put on Christ. The verb put on in Greek is a lot like getting dressed. And so we could also say that Christians who have been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit have been clothed with Christ. And this clothing image is a metaphor used in other places by the Apostle Paul to communicate some amazing truths about us as Christians. By putting on Christ, believers have, number one, taking on the identity of Christ. What we wear tells people who we are. That's why the bride at a wedding wears a white dress. That's why a cop wears his uniform on duty. And that's why sometimes I can be mistaken for a homeless person. Let me explain. So on Tuesdays, in this very building, in this parking lot, um, there's a, an amazing charity that come and feed the homeless, okay? And um, Tuesdays, I'm here, obviously, in a building. I'm getting work done, and about 4 p.m., I leave to go home. And I'm not kidding you, twice it's happened, but the most recent time, I, I am exiting this building, and most Tuesdays, I'm just wearing shorts and a t-shirt. I don't even think about dressing, okay? And I'm wearing flip-flops, and I'm just hanging out, and I look scruffy. Not as clean as I look, but like Tuesdays are, very. And so, I'm walking out of this building, and one of the volunteers looks at me and goes, excuse me, um, you're not supposed to be in the building, you're supposed to be out there <laughs> getting some food. <laughs> I remember she told me that, and I was like, how do I respond? <laughs> I literally went, sorry. <laughs> and I just, <laughs> I'm not kidding you, this happened. <laughs> she was doing her job. <laughs> really well. <laughs> what we were tells people who we are. <laughs> Nearly every kind of clothing is actually a uniform showing that we are identified with others of the same gender, social class, or national group. But to say that we are clothed with Christ is to say that our ultimate identity is found not in any of these classifications, but in Christ. Because we are clothed in Christ, we are to act like Christ. To put on Christ also means to take Jesus into every area of our lives. Because we are clothed in Christ, what this also means is that we are fully accepted by God. Clothing is worn as an adornment. It covers our nakedness, and God has been providing clothes that cover our shame since the fall. And so to be clothed with Christ, listen to this, also means that the Lord Jesus has given us his righteousness to wear. This means in God's sight, Christian, you are loved because of Jesus' work and salvation. 
Tim Keller has this to say, when God looks at us, he sees us as his sons because he sees his son. So my brothers and sisters in Christ, you are clothed with Christ. He's your new adornment. You've laid aside your old self, your old identity, and your old way of life. And I wonder if people around you notice. I wonder if the people that are closest to you would identify you as a Christ follower. Because we're united with Christ, we're not only heirs and we're not only clothed. Next, because we're united with Christ, we are one. We are equal. Look at verse 28 of chapter 3. Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This has to be one of the most well-known and beloved Bible verses in all of the Bible. This verse, let me remind you that we think it's awesome and everything, but back then, it was very revolutionary. During the times this letter was written, Jewish Christians probably felt superior to non-Jewish Christians, referred to here as Greeks, due to their ethnic and religious heritage. Because Jews were God's covenant people, what they did was they viewed themselves as the original recipients of God's promises and his law. And so in view of this, you can imagine Jewish Christians believed that in order for non-Jewish Christians to be fully accepted and justified before God, they needed to adopt Jewish customs and practices, including circumcision. As you can imagine, this belief created a sort of spiritual hierarchy which implied that non-Jewish Christians were somewhat inferior or less than until they conformed to Jewish traditions. So when Paul says in verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slaves or free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ, he's making a powerful statement. He's saying this, that ethnic, social, and gender distinctions hold no value in terms of salvation and standing before God. In Christ, everyone has equal access to God's promises and blessings. And this is mainly because in Christ, all are equally sinners in need of grace and equally recipients of that grace. The cross does this. The cross of Christ levels the playing field and faith in Christ, not ethnicity, not social status, not gender, is what defines a person's identity and value in God's family. Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 is a powerful verse that speaks about our oneness in Christ, but it's also a verse that can be easily misinterpreted. And so let me just clarify what this verse is not saying, doesn't mean, okay? First, being one in Christ doesn't mean our personalities, cultural heritage, or gender distinctions are irrelevant. Rather, the focus of this verse 
is that these distinctions do not determine our value in God's family, but faith in Christ does. Second, being one in Christ doesn't mean that there are no differences in roles within the local church. The verse addresses salvation and status in God's kingdom, not the roles and functions within a local church. Third, being one in Christ doesn't mean that societal structures and roles are completely disregarded. This verse speaks to our spiritual equality before God. It does not prescribe a specific social order. And so, to conclude, this verse isn't about erasing who we are. It's not a statement about how we operate within the church or society. Instead, this verse invites us to recognize the equal value and dignity of every individual in Christ without getting rid of our diverse identities and experiences. I feel better now. <laughs> With this verse, Paul is really calling us out on something we all struggle with. And that is thinking we're somehow better than others. Let me explain. This doesn't only play out in the category of ethnicity, social, or gender. I think if we look closely at this verse, it's also about those moments when we catch ourselves thinking we're more loved and more valued by God because of something we have or something we've done. For example, sometimes we might feel a bit more important than other Christians because we've been a Christian for a long time. Look how many years I've been saved. I am a mature believer. Yes, that's awesome. Praise God for your faithfulness, but that doesn't make you better than the person who just got saved. Or maybe some of you think you are better than other Christians because you don't face the same struggles or temptations that they do. That look at me, I am, I'm past that. I don't do those things anymore because I'm an awesome Christian and I'm better than you. Or perhaps we think we're better because we volunteer more or can recite more Bible verses. And when we pray, it feels like the Holy Spirit is praying. It's a tricky thing but the cross levels the playing field and faith in Christ, not ethnicity, social status, or gender or achievements is what defines a person's identity and value before God. This was a crucial message for the church in Galatia, and guess what? It's a crucial message for us. King's Cross Church in the, in, in the 21st century. And so I wonder how God's design in making us one in Christ challenges your views on diversity and acceptance within our church family. What, are, what could be some of the biases or prejudices you need to address in your life in light of the biblical truth that in Christ Christians are equal? In what ways can you begin to demonstrate the unity we have in Christ to those outside the church even? And I wonder how this truth might change the way you treat others. Because we're united with Christ, we're not only heirs, we're not only clothed, we're not only equal, Lastly, we are adopted. 
We are adopted. In Christ, everyone has equal access to God's promises and blessings, regardless of their ethnic background, social status, or, or gender. Paul, the apostle, who's the author of this letter to, a, to an ancient church in Galatia, what he does next in chapter 4 is that he transitions to an analogy about heirs and guardianship. Look at chapter 4, verses 1 through two, one and 2. Paul says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Paul is using here an analogy we might not understand, but he, um, the people in that context would have easily understood in ancient Rome, for instance, a young heir, though owing everything, would remain under guardians, much like slaves, until they reached the age set by their father, despite owning everything. Only after reaching this age, I think it was 25, that they could fully control their inheritance. Paul then applies this analogy to Christians. He says in verse 3 of chapter 4, in the same way, we also, when we were children, talking to Christians, were enslaved to what? To what? The elementary principles of the world. First of all, the, world, the word children here isn't talking about little kids. In this context, it's actually a metaphor for Christians before they became Christians. It's kind of like spiritual kids. Paul says, before we Christians were saved, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. This phrase, elementary principles... Um, in Greek can mean the basic, listen to me closely, fundamental elements of religious and worldly life. It's like the ABCs of how the world works without knowing Christ. And these could be religious rituals, societal norms, or even spiritual beliefs that people follow without really understanding the deeper truths that are only found in Christ. Todd Wilson interprets or applies elementary principles as money, sex, and power. He says this, Todd Wilson says this, these elementary principles of the world are all around us all the time. We cannot avoid them, but more than that, they're incredibly powerful. So powerful, in fact, that sinful creatures like you and me are constantly tempted to turn them into idols and worship them as gods. Paul says we were enslaved to these principles. So when Paul talks about being enslaved to the elementary principle, he's saying that before Christ, we were enslaved to powers beyond our control. We were enslaved to idols that we treated like gods. And here's the good news. God didn't leave us in this state. As Todd Wilson says, God the Father wasn't content to let humanity forever languish in the orphanage of the world. Instead, his heart was set on adoption. And so how did God adopt us? Look at verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Adoption, I've heard, is an incredible thing. I've talked to many families who've been through it, and they always say that, man, adoption is 
awesome in so many ways, but they also say it's a serious journey filled with many challenges and hurdles. It takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, and it's very expensive. Now think about this. The steps God took to adopt you as his child was even a bigger deal. We're talking about a whole other level of painstaking effort. When we read in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 5, about God adopting us, that's not just a simple act. It's a monumental, universe-changing event that shows just how far God was willing to go for you. It's mind-blowing. First of all, God's adoption of us began when the fullness of time had come. Think about it like the perfect timing, yeah? It's like God had this master plan, and at just the right moment in history, he put it into action. Not too early, not too late, just perfect timing. God's adoption of us was achieved by what? By sending forth his son. Notice that God didn't send an angel or a prophet. He sent his own son. Jesus was born, like all human beings are, into a state of obligation to the law. This means that the divine son of God not only had to take on human identity, he also had to submit himself to the curse of the law. In other words, in order to adopt sinful creatures like you and I, the son not only had to become like you and I, but he also had to be crucified on the cross and become a curse for us. Jesus' perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection, Christian, is what made it possible for you and every human on this planet who places their faith in Jesus Christ made it possible to experience redemption and receive adoption as sons. This means we're not just freed and then left on our own. We're brought into God's own family. Think about not just being set free from prison, but then being told you're now part of the royal family or something. Todd Wilson says, God went to great lengths to secure our adoption. He spared absolutely no expense. In fact, he paid the highest price by giving his son so we could be made right with him and become his children by faith. And as amazing as this was that we are adopted children of God, there is more amazing truths that need to be said and believed. Look at verse 6 of chapter 4. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Not only are we adopted as God's children, but he also sends the spirit of his son into our hearts. And this spirit inspires us to relate to the God of the universe as what? Abba, Father. Now, Abba is an Aramaic term that was used in the everyday language of families. 
as a term addressing someone's father. Children as well as adult sons and daughters would use Abba when speaking to their father. And so Abba conveys a warm, intimate sense just as without expression of dear father. And so imagine this. Imagine you find a time machine and you transport all the way back to the ancient times. And so you are in ancient Galatia, you are in Athens, and you are in Rome, and you are in a coffee shop discussing philosophy and religion with a friend. Imagine, in that kind of culture, most gods seemed distant and demanding and even scary. Then your friend tells you, about a God who invites you to call him Abba, Father? This would have blown your mind because it would turn the whole idea of religion on its head. This is where Christianity stands out from any other religion. Many religions have a concept of God or gods as powerful, distant, maybe even caring in a general sense. But Christianity comes along and says, the God of the universe says to you that I am your father. I am your Abba father. That's unheard of. And so it's not about rituals of fear. It's about relationship. It's about a God who's not just mighty, but also deeply, passionately intimate with his children. There's much to be loved about Douglas Adams' book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's a story of a hapless protagonist named Arthur Dent who travels the galaxy in his dressing gown and towel. The book's filled with absurd creatures and it's hilarious encounters and these bizarre scenarios. The book is funny. It's a bit out there. It really is. But it suggests that the universe is this random purposeless place like hitchhikers without real purpose or direction. And what is the author's key advice throughout all of this chaos? Don't panic. But this raises an intriguing question. What's our place in this huge universe? In the Bible, King David has a view of the universe too and presents a different interpretation. Look at Psalm 8, verses 3 to 4. David says, When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, hands, should be hands, sorry, my translation, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them. Here, David looks at the heavens. He looks at the moon and the stars, thinks about the universe, and instead of feeling insignificant, he's struck by the wonder that the creator of all of this vastness is mindful of him and cares for him. This perspective shows that the universe as a masterpiece by a God who's not just mighty but also caring and personal, it tells us that our existence isn't meaningless. In fact, the creator of the universe is the same Abba Father who offers you a personal and meaningful relationship. It's a perspective that doesn't say, hey, don't panic, but rather it's a perspective that says, 
Christian, you are valued and loved by the one who made it all. Abba emphasizes the warm, intimate, and very personal relationship that exists between the believer and the God who made and sustains the universe. And so if you are here and you are a Christian and you have been united with Christ, the God who made everything you see, everything you taste, everything you experience, the God that created and sustains the universe says to you, I am your Abba Father. For real. I've been trying to sit with this this week and I've been begging and pleading with God. Just God, help me. Help me grasp just how incredibly powerful this truth is. For real. The God who created the universe and sustains it, like, like he says to you, I am your father. And not just a distant father, but Abba Father, a God who is close and intimate and actually knows you and cares for you. In a world where we're often chasing after approval or trying to measure up, God wants you to know you're already loved, already accepted, you are part of my family. That's a game changer intellectually and emotionally. It changes everything. As we conclude our study of Galatians chapter 3, 25 to 4, 7, May we be reminded that we are heirs of God's promises. We are clothed in Christ. We're one in Christ and we are adopted. And as a result, we're beloved children who now refer to God as Abba Father. So as we leave here today, let's walk in the fullness of these truths. Let's pray and ask that God would shape us and change us and allow us to live in this reality. Let's pray. God, thank you. I ask that you would do what only you can do, and that is to take everything we've been exposed to. May you take it. May you bring it to bear on our hearts and enable us to live in these realities. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.